when when you get down to the basics of humanity, you find that humans are not very complicated creatures. There are very few things that truly motivate us. Our needs motivate us. So if we're hungry or thirsty or too cold or too warm, we will actively seek out measures to remedy that situation. But there are deeper factors that motivate us at almost an instinctual level. Um, and the two greatest of those are love and fear. Love and fear are our two greatest motivators. And right in the middle of those two, right where love and fear intersect is another powerful motivator, and that's rejection. I'm very strongly motivated by my fear of rejection. Uh, in the weeks, months leading up to my 30th birthday party, I really wanted to have a huge dance party and invite all my friends and family and community to celebrate me, I'll be honest, celebrate with this, this all-night dance party. And every year since then, as summer winds down, I think, I really want to have this dance party. And here I am, I just turned 35 last weekend, so five years in and no dance party has manifested. Why? Because I'm terrified that I'll send a Facebook invitation to 300 people and five people will show up. Those five people will be in for the greatest night of dance of their lives, but I know I would be crushed by how many people don't show up. And so I don't plan the dance party with everyone I love because I'm afraid that they won't show up. I'm, I'm afraid of rejection. Rejection is the intersection of love and fear, and nowhere is that more clear, more obvious than in the frustrating and pathetic case of junior high crushes. Angie is the only woman I ever dated, but not for lack of trying. <laughs> in junior high, I asked a girl out, and at first she said yes, but since it was junior high, we never really did anything. When you live in the country and they live, you, you can't get to each other, so we never really spent much time together. And less than two weeks later at youth group, because of course it was at youth group, her friend came up to me, smiling. Her friend was smiling as she passed me a note, and the contents of that very short note were as follows, I don't think we should date anymore. Which is fine, because for me, dating in high school just meant making awkward eye contact and um, flirting in uncomfortable ways and, and sitting by each other during prayer time at youth group in hopes that it was a hand-holding prayer time so you wouldn't get in trouble. But it was nothing. It was just a crush. That, that uncomfortable eye contact and flirting wouldn't be perfected until summer of 2003 when Angie and I went on Youth Alive together. That's when, that's when it really paid off. Right, Angie? All that flirting? Oh, boy. She just rolled her eyeballs right out of her head. But I'll never forget standing on the lawn out there and that friend running up to me smiling, handing me that note and those brutal short words. That's the sting of rejection. And it doesn't disappear quickly. It lingers and it motivates and it fosters this almost instinctual fear that has to be overcome if Clyde is ever to experience its greatest ever all-night legendary dance party. But the fear of, of rejection isn't just a powerful motor when it comes to social plans and junior high crushes. On a much more serious and sacred note, the fear of rejection is a dominant factor that dictates our religious views. The fear of rejection colors our perspective of God himself and determines how we approach him or probably more accurately, determines how we become too afraid to approach him. We're afraid to be rejected by our creator. And so for the third installment of this re-examination of the story of scripture and our place in it, we will re-examine the concept of rejection. Where does rejection fit into our understanding of who God is? And who are we in light of his nature as revealed to us in scripture and more perfectly as revealed to us in his son, Jesus? We will re-examine the biblical concept of rejection, and as you'll see, there's a ton of material. 
Rejection is a very common biblical theme. In the Old Testament, everything from the call of Abraham, that's Genesis 12, all the way to the end, which is Malachi, which was written about 400 years before Jesus, all of that material is basically one story. The story of God's chosen people, the Israelites, wrestling with God. And that's what Israel, the name Israel means. It means wrestle with God. And all of that content is the story of them wrestling with their God. Beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12, those chosen people, Israel, they were dealt with primarily on the basis of a series of promises, a series of covenants that God made to his people. Promises to people like Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, and others. These covenantal promises are the foundation upon which Israel built its religious life. These promises governed how the Hebrew people viewed themselves and how they viewed the God that they were to love and serve and wrestle with. They were promises of blessings and fruitfulness and unending love. They were promises of belonging and identity and rewards for obedience. They were beautiful promises God made with his people, the people that he called and chose himself. But there was a problem. And this is the problem that we talked about last week in our re-series. And that problem is rebellion, human rebellion. Human rebellion kept undermining those covenants as we continually failed to hold up our end of the bargain in these beautiful promises. And because humans were so consistently rebellious, God would frequently sour on the promises that he himself had made with his people. He would have to discipline Israel, his firstborn child, often harshly because they so often chose idolatry, disobedience, and pride over praise, submission, and humility. Because of this, Israel became conditioned to obey not out of worship or out of love, but out of fear. Hebrew religion was initiated by promises, but the people were motivated by fear of rejection. And that fear of rejection undermined those promises and unraveled their identity as the chosen people of God. That's the story of the Old Testament. All these promises, all this work God does to call them and form them and make them his own, and human rebellion, human desire to love self over God just keeps undermining and unraveling those covenants. And when they did worship, it was not out of love, it was out of fear. As the chosen people of God, the Israelites established their identity on several enormously significant religious elements that dominate the story of the Old Testament. These are often things that God himself instituted on behalf of the Israelites or commanded them to, to carry out in a specific way. Three of the most dominant elements of Israelite identity, so three of the, the, this is what it means to be an Israelite, to be a Jew, to be a Hebrew person, Three of the most dominant ones were sacrifice, land, and circumcision. All three began as promises of love. And all three, over the course of Scripture, would be rejected as Israel failed their covenantal obligation to faithfully follow their God. So let's look at the sacrificial system first. If you ever want to kill a couple hours or so, and that's pun intended, check out the regulations in the Torah for how Israelites were to properly offer sacrifices. There are lots of them. It's very boring. It's very gruesome. Very detailed, but each one of those steps was supposed to be an act of worship. The sacrifices were to be given in a spirit of thankful appreciation and humble apology. They're a way to say thank you and a way to say sorry. Everything from grains and fruits to doves and rams and bulls were offered to God. The entire Israelite cultic system, meaning the mechanics of how their religion operated, all of it centered on these sacrifices. The blood of animals spared their own blood and appeased God. The gratitude of the offerings demonstrated their faithful love to the God who gifts them everything they have and need anyway. 
It was an elaborate and powerful system, but it was a broken system. Rather than love and thanks and humility, the sacrifices became empty ritual. God would receive the seventh or eighth finest lamb from their flock, because obviously you don't just murder the purest of your lambs, right? That wouldn't make any sense. Give them the discolored tripod sheep with the oozing eye. Who cares anyway? It's just a dead sheep. I've got a tent full of children to feed, so I'm not going to give God my best. Why give him my best? I need that for me. Meanwhile, the Israelites kept right on rebelling. A little blood on the altar here, a few baskets of grain there, and that should shut Yahweh up for a little while. Now back to my Asherah poles and my carved Canaanite idols. Back to beating my kids and cheating on my wife and hating Jehoshaphat, the poor man in the next pasture over because his one goat keeps getting into my vineyards and eating my grapes. Empty ritual failed to, to heal rebellious hearts. Empty ritual failed to heal rebellious hearts. And so God rejects the sacrificial system, which was one of Israel's key identifying factors. You weren't a Jew, you weren't a Hebrew, if you didn't offer these sacrifices. But God starts to move away from this. You see this in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's response to um, the murder and adultery that he committed with Bathsheba. And David writes, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. After great sin, David doesn't necessarily go out and find the biggest, finest bull he can find or find a flock of a thousand sheep to sacrifice. He doesn't necessarily, in fact, 2 Samuel 12, which is the account of David being confronted with his sin, 2 Samuel 12 doesn't say David made any sacrifices at all to say sorry to God. It just says he went to the temple to worship. That may have included sacrifices, but that's not, what, that's not the, the sacrifice that David made. He wants to make it clear. David realized that no amount of burnt hamburger could purify him from his lustful desires. No amount of sheep's blood could bring back Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, who he had murdered. No sacrifice could repair the broken faithlessness of the king. And so the king takes a different approach based on a wise realization. It was never about the sacrifices anyway. The sacrifices would be an outward expression of an inward worship. The, the sacrifice God truly desired was a broken and contrite heart. So keep your sheep. Keep them. I don't need them. Give me yourself instead. Keep your sheep. Give me you. By the time Jeremiah prophesied several hundred years later, God had abandoned the sacrificial system even further. Yes, here's Jeremiah 7. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. In other words, give all you want. I don't care. Eat it yourself. I don't care. It's not about the sacrifices. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, or I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They rebelled. They went backwards and not forwards. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. Therefore, say to them, This is a nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to its correction. Take up a lament on the barren heights, for the Lord has, what? Rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. 
It's a pretty powerful passage. Eat the offerings yourself. I don't care. All I really want is your obedience, and you refuse to give it to me. And so I'm turning from you. He doesn't need or want your offerings or sacrifices. Eat them yourselves. What he truly desires is for you to be his people and for him to be your God. He longed for relationship with his firstborn children, but they offered empty ritual instead. So how does he respond? He rejects and abandons his chosen people. That's the sacrifice system. Now let's look at the the covenant promise of land, which is another huge deal in scripture. It's literally the first covenantal promise God's chosen people ever receive. The first words that God speaks to Abram in Genesis 12 are, go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. Go from this land to another land, a promised land. A land flowing with what? Milk and hootmer honey. (laughs) They're not even here to hear that. After God delivers them from Egypt through the Red Sea, the next thing they were supposed to do was enter this land that had been promised to them. But the rebellion prevented that for another 40 years. But once Moses and his generation of disobedient rebels dies off, Joshua's generation of strong and courageous Israelites begins to seize Canaan, the promised land, for Yahweh one city at a time. Because God made a covenant agreement with his people that they would have a land of their own to prosper in. And for the rest of history, Israel would snack on honeycomb cereal and ice-cold milk, and the Holy Land would never see any turmoil or bloodshed again, right? No. This is Palestine we're talking about, which has probably seen more reckless bloodshed per square inch than any other place on earth. It did not become a place of peace. And God had warned them about this. He warned them not to take the land for granted. He warned them that the property would be reallocated, given to someone else, if they failed to hold up their end of the promise. Here's Leviticus 26. If they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility towards me, which made me hostile towards them, so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, so they disobeyed, I sent them away, but if they confess their sin... Then, when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. In other words, my sinful, rebellious, unfaithful people will turn from me. That's what God knew they would do. And as punishment, I will send them to other lands and rip this promised land away from them. The land itself needs a Sabbath, which I love. The land itself needs a break from my ridiculous, rebellious children of mine. And they will pay for their sins. Why? Because they reject God's law. They reject God himself. They will turn from their creator and worship idols and worship themselves. And of course, that's exactly what happened. First, the northern tribes, the rebellious kingdoms of Israel, kingdom of Israel, who had like no good kings ever, they would be taken into exile by Assyria in the 720s BC, so about 700 years before Jesus. They would be ripped from their homes and ripped from their land because of their disobedience. And later, in 586 BC, the slightly more faithful southern kingdom of Judah, which included Jerusalem, would themselves be conquered by Babylon and dragged off away from the promised land. And that traumatic event, and it was deeply traumatic for the people of God to be ripped away from their land, that traumatic event, known as the exile, would completely transform God's chosen people. 
It would reshape how they viewed God and themselves because God had torn his promised land away from them. He had rejected his people and the sting of that rejection, like a junior high crush, the sting of that rejection would revolutionize their understanding of who they were and how they should properly follow their God. That passage from Leviticus had a word that may have gotten your attention. It stands out a little bit, uncircumcised. We talk a lot about circumcision in the church, an uncomfortable amount, to be honest, but that's because it was crucially important for Israel as its identity of God's chosen people. In fact, circumcision was the dominant sign of their identity as God's chosen people, even more than the sacrificial system or the promised land. That's because having every Hebrew male get circumcised was an identifying factor belonging to God before the laws were even given. It predates the law. It dates back to Genesis 17, when poor 99-year-old Abraham was called to circumcise himself, which is a part of scripture that I will move quickly away from to eliminate mental images. So for several hundred years, in an enormously patriarchal system, the only thing that marked a household as belonging to the one true God was circumcision. That's all they had to know that they belonged to God. Circumcision. It wasn't even enough to be a descendant of Abraham because Ishmael was also a descendant of Abraham, but his line wasn't the chosen line. Through the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, through the enslavement in Egypt, only circumcision meant you belonged to God. It was the one supreme covenantal indicator, circumcision. But even circumcision began to lose its power. Here's Jeremiah again, chapter 9. It says, this is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. And he names some countries, I don't have it back there, but he names Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the wilderness and distant places, for all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. By the time of the exile, when Jeremiah writes, circumcision had lost its power. Sure, the whole house of Israel had the physical procedure done, but they completely ignored the spiritual cutting of the heart that was meant to accompany that ritual. If you were merely circumcised in the flesh, it was not enough. The whole house of Israel was, as it says here, uncircumcised in the heart, and they themselves would be cut off and sent to exile. What is an uncircumcised, or sorry, what is a circumcised heart? It's a heart that knows God, a heart that is identified by those things that delight in the Lord. As it says in verse 24, things like kindness, justice, righteousness. That is not an exclusive list. You could add many things to that list that show that we are, that identify us as people of God. But let's start with kindness, justice, righteousness. That's what Jeremiah 9.24 says. Those are your identifiers. Forget about the ritual. If you haven't got the heart, he doesn't want the ritual. If you only circumcise the flesh and not the heart, then you will be rejected. Just like the pagan nations around Israel. Paul the Apostle takes this thinking much further. He condemns those who rely on circumcision. He calls it garbage. It's an empty ritual. And so one by one, God rejects each of the things that identifies Israel as his people. He rejects the sacrificial system. He rejects the promised land. He rejects the most significant identifier of belonging to him, circumcision. 
And the list goes on. He would reject the line of kings. He would reject the special dietary restrictions. He would reject the Sabbath regulations. He would even reject his own sacred law that he commanded his people to obey. He rejects all of it. The whole Old Testament system of knowing, loving, following God, he rejects. He gets rid of it. All of these things, they were all identifiers of God's people. They were items that God himself commanded, and now he is rejecting them. So does that mean that God is rejecting his people? If he gets rid of everything the people are supposed to do to know him, love him, follow him, to wrestle with him, if he gets rid of all that stuff, does that mean he's getting rid of them? And if he is, how could he be a God of love, acceptance, and grace if he's so willing to cast his people aside? How can we trust a God who rejects the very people he makes covenant promises to? These are important questions to ask, so I'm glad you asked them. When we read Jeremiah 9, when we, that's what we just read, and when we read Jeremiah 9 in regards to God's rejection of his people based around circumcision, we read these words that highlight the nature of the God Israel wrestled with. It says, I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. That's who our God is. So let's start there. When, when he rejects his people based on circumcision, that's what he says. I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. Then, we, when we read Jeremiah 7 in regards to God's rejection of his people based on the sacrificial system, we read these words. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Why do I put these two things together? Well, he is a kind, just, and righteous God. The entirety of Scripture, remember we talked about that in the Revelation sermon? you got to look at the whole picture of Scripture, and the whole picture of Scripture bears out that he is kind, just, and righteous. And in his kindness, justice, and righteousness, he asks his people to be the same. That's their true identity. Not sacrificers of sacred lambs, not possessors of sacred lands, not cutters of sacred flesh. Their true identity was kindness, justice, and righteousness. That was their end of the covenant relationship. Know him. That's what they were supposed to do. That's their end of the bargain. Know him. Know him and obey him, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. He will shape them into his likeness. They are not kind and just and righteous on their own. Nobody is. He had to shape them. And he used things like the sacrifice system, the promised land, and circumcision circumcision to shape them, to shape their hearts. He will shape them into his likeness, and as his ambassadors, he'll use them to shape the rest of humanity. They were to be the subjects of his love, but instead they chose to be the rejects of his love. Instead of subjects of his love, they chose to be the rejects. Israel was rebellious, and they refused to obey. Oh, no. If they carried out rituals of devotion, when they, carried, when they got around to actually carrying out rituals of devotion, those rituals were heartless and meaningless. They relied on their lineage. They relied on their rules, their moral superiority. They thought that they were covered by their outward markings and their religious ceremonies, but their hearts were wretched and impure. They were unjust, unloving, unkind, unwelcoming, and untrusting. And that is the same reality that we face. We too rely on our rules and our rituals and our self-righteousness. But they're not enough. They have never been enough. That's what the story of scripture is. You cannot rely on rules to save you. You cannot rely on ritual to save you. You cannot rely on what little righteousness you can manifest for yourself to save you. It won't be enough. It'll fall 
absolutely dreadfully short every time. And if that's what we rely on, then we too face rejection. But the story of Scripture is not one of God rejecting his people. It's the long, tragic history of God's people rejecting him. He only rejects his people when his people have already abandoned him. But there's more. When we read Leviticus 26, which we just read previously in regards to God's rejection of his people based around the promised land, these immediately follow that rejection. It said, they will pay for their sins because they rejected my law and abhorred my decrees. That's what God says in Leviticus 26. Here's the very next verse. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. Did you hear that? God threatens his people with rejection and he carries out those threats when his people abandon him completely. But he never, ever rejects them fully. He never rejects us fully. He will never forget his covenant promises. He will never allow us to be completely destroyed. And Leviticus 26 is far from unique in the story of Scripture. Wherever you find threats of rejection in the law or in the prophets, you will always find somewhere nearby, usually waiting quietly to be read and understood, whenever you hear promises of rejection, you will also hear assurances of redemption. Always. Think of Jeremiah 29, which was written to the people in the exile. I will rip you away. I will reject you as my people. I will send you to Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, the most famous passage in Jeremiah, and maybe of all the prophets, is, but I have a plan for you. A plan to prosper you, not to harm you. You are my people and I will call you back. I will send you away because you rebel, because you disobey me, because you hate me. I'll send you away, but while you're away, you will learn, and I will redeem. God will not abandon his people. He will not abandon any of his people, no matter how rebellious and wayward. He always leaves an invitation open for grace. Grace is always supreme over rejection. He only rejects those who reject him, but even then, the offer of grace remains. We are only ever as rejected by God as we allow ourselves to be. I'll say that again. We are only ever as rejected by God as we allow ourselves to be. We are only as rejected by God as we get away from him. He doesn't change. His love doesn't change. He's always ready to call us back. So we are only as rejected as we make ourselves rejected. He is always ready to redeem us, which is what Marnie will be talking about next week. That's our next reword, redemption. Thankfully, he doesn't reject us based on things that humans reject each other for. He will not reject you for being poor. In fact, he will bless you for being poor. You are the blessed ones if you are poor. You're the lucky ones. The world doesn't see it that way, but God does. Conversely, he will not reject you for being wealthy. Think of the rich leaders in Philippi. We've studied them for the last couple years now. They were not rejected. They're heroes. He will not reject you for being wealthy, which is fortunate for us who live in the wealthiest generation in human history, We're very fortunate that way, that he won't reject us because of our wealth, despite what political campaigns about taxation will tell you. You are doing fine. Both sides will say taxes. You're fine. You're all fine. I'm fine. We're good. We're okay. 
We are the wealthiest generation that's ever existed on planet Earth. We're doing fine. Thankfully, God doesn't reject us in our wealth. It may be exponentially harder to enter the kingdom as a wealthy person because you cannot serve two masters, but you will not be rejected by God on the basis of your income reports. You you just won't. You will not be rejected for your weaknesses, for in your weakness, he is strong. You will not be rejected for your failures or else Christ's kingdom would be a population of one because we're all a bunch of failures. You will not be rejected for your reputation for our Christ feasted with prostitutes and tax collectors, the worst, least reputable people in all of Jewish civilization. That's who Jesus partied with. That's who he spent time with. He didn't care about their reputation. You will not be rejected for your emotional or mental pain. Blessed are those who mourn. You will not be rejected for your smallness or obscurity, for ours is a kingdom of small things with big value and big impact. It's it's a kingdom of mustard seeds. It's a kingdom of very small things that grow and blossom to bring him glory. So you're small. Thank God you're small. Literally, thank him that you're small because out of small things, he does big things. In short, you will never be rejected for the things that cause other people to reject you. You will never be rejected if you are willing to turn to your God and follow him. You see it over and over in scripture. You, you just you won't be rejected if you turn to him. The prodigal son is a story about ourselves, as Marnie said during communion time. Rebellion and rejection of our father. But when we return, we're not met with his rejection. We're met with his rejoicing. He celebrates us when we finally come to our senses and turn back to him. If you recognize you're in need of a doctor, your doctor will accept you and offer healing. But if you fail to recognize your sickness, what hope do you have to be healed? How can a doctor accept a patient who never comes to her for treatment? You have to go for treatment to be healed. It's the sick who go to a doctor. And we are very sick. Our rejection by him is based on our rejection of him. Period. That's the only basis for our rejection. If we reject him, That's the only time we will be rejected. We are only ever as rejected as we allow ourselves to be. We're not accepted for our following of rules or else he would never have done away with the sacrifices, the temple, the the law, the land, the circumcision. Those were all things we could do to be accepted. But he doesn't, it's not based on that anymore. We are only accepted when we put our faith in the Christ who was himself rejected by humankind. I'm going to close with 1 Peter 2, which reads, As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And here's all that Old Testament, the cultic system, the religious system. Here's how Jesus transforms it. You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. He rejects the priesthood, but you are the priesthood. He rejects the formal priesthood. You are now, you understand. Offering spiritual sacrifices. I thought he did away with the sacrificial system. Well, he did. He did away with the rules and regulations of the sacrificial system. But you are the new sacrificial system. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, then the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because God makes them stumble. No, they stumble because they choose to disobey. They make themselves rejected. 
They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Rejection is all over the story of Scripture. Jesus himself faced rejection because he challenged the empty religion and self-righteousness of those in power. God always challenges our empty religion and our self-righteousness. 1 Peter 2.7, up here, you see behind me? It's quoting from Psalm 118.22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted like seven times in the New Testament. Jesus himself quotes it in three of the four Gospels. It's quoted in Acts. It's quoted in Peter. It's quoted all over the place. Clearly, it was very important to the early church. Their stone had been rejected, but now that stone God has turned into the cornerstone, the foundation upon which everything about our faith is built. God's people rejected him throughout the Old Testament. They rejected Christ throughout his time on earth. All humanity follows the same pattern of rejecting the stone that God puts in place. But that rejected stone is now the cornerstone, holding all things together in power. And as the one in power, he has the authority to reject each one of us for our brokenness, our weakness, and our failure. He has that authority to cast us away, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't reject us. Instead, He patiently and kindly and graciously builds us into his spiritual house. And then once he builds us as his house, he lives inside of us. Once inside, he patiently and graciously shapes us into his image, an image of kindness and justice and righteousness. To use the language of Jeremiah and Leviticus, he circumcises our hearts as he promised he would do. He calls us not to sacrifice lambs and bulls, but to sacrifice our very lives in response to his grace. And he prepares a promised land ahead for each of us, while in the meantime inviting each of us, his holy priesthood, in this broken and hurting land to be his ambassadors of justice, kindness, and righteousness. Our God doesn't seek to reject us. He seeks to redeem us. There is nothing, we can't hear this enough as fallen humans there is nothing we can do to make him love us more no ritual that makes us more worthy we need not be motivated by a fear of rejection he only rejects those who reject him those who rely on sacred places or religious practices or outward markings to save them those who abandon him in favor of rebellious self-righteousness and empty meaningless ritual those are the ones who get rejected those who refuse the life of jesus the cornerstone as it says in john three thirty-six, whoever believes in the son has eternal life But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Why? Because they reject the Son. We stumble when we disobey. We reject ourselves when we run from Christ the cornerstone. Jesus is not going to send a friend smiling at you and handing you a letter that says it's time to break up. He's not going to do that to you. We are guilty of doing the breaking up. And we do it all the time. But if we want love... We will find it. If we want eternal life, the Son is waiting to share it with us. Grace is supreme. It is always supreme. So have no fear. Acceptance and not rejection is here. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you accept even us. Father, we know that we rely on superficial things to make us okay with you. We rely on being good, following the rules, uh, all these rituals, but they're ultimately empty and meaningless if our heart isn't there as well. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would make us a, a people with circumcised hearts, that, that you draw us 
to your presence, to, to your holy land, if you will, that you draw us to you, shape us into your holy house, and fill us with kindness and justice and righteousness. Father, I, I pray that we would be a people who love you and follow you and, and seek you and yet yeah, wrestle with you. I pray that we would be everything Israel was intended to be, um, knowing and trusting and relying on you, Jesus, the rejected stone, um, trusting in you to accept us. We celebrate together that we are your accepted people, your chosen people, your holy priesthood. Pray that we would be worthy of that. So we pray all these things in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Those five people will be in for the greatest night of dance of their lives. A land flowing with what? Milk and Hootmer honey.